Welcome along to our end of season review. A lot to get through. Nick's back from uh, absence without leave. We finally got hold of him. But uh, for this first part, we will talk about from uh, July through to January and the transfer links or there or lack of. And we'll go through it sort of month in three blocks. Uh, but first of all, I must say that Vanarama, our sponsor for the summer, are, are driving Fan TV this summer up and down the country and even to Russia for the World Cup. They're running a giveaway uh, for the Champions League final where you and your mates can win the ultimate big night in, including a beer and a £50 uh, gift voucher to spend wherever you want. Nick, what would you spend £50 for the Champions League final? Well, beer probably is, <laughs> is the uh, <laughs> obvious uh answer to that uh, but yeah be, you know good Champions League final and if someone would like to fund me and sponsor me for it I'd be quite happy and all you have to do is you need to get over to Vanarama's Twitter page and all you need to do is retweet their pinned tweets so good luck with that and we're of course here at the Five Rivers pub for our sort of oh now annual end of season review show really isn't it yeah, it's good. I mean, I like the uh, Five Rivers. Nice garden in the back. And last year we sat in the sun and did a few things. And this year we're doing it again. You know, ideal pub for a drink before the game if you're coming from the sort of Portswood side of the city. It is. It is an excellent pub and a massive beer garden. For those of you that remember, the dungeon has been given a lick of paint and it's been open now for over a year and a half and an excellent pub for match day. But what I will also do, I'll also make these episodes to download so you can listen to us on the go for a podcast. But... We will start from day one. So the day that Pellegrino got appointed, um, first of all, we'll go to a clip to say to show you what we said. I'm still a little bit uh, not underwhelmed, but I, I'm, I'm still a little bit uh, worried. But I think that's more due to the fact that he's an unknown in this country as a manager, and it, you know his track record isn't great with staying at places very long. Although I'm a little bit sceptical at the moment, you know I'm perfectly. Willing to give him a chance, you know, he's got he's going to have the playing squad to do that. It'd be interesting to see how some of the players react. Uh, and I mean, again, my slight disappointment is that I would hope that we go for someone with a little bit more of a name that would it would excite the players. Uh, but it, as I say, it's fear of the unknown a little bit. And, uh, you know, that's just my worry. You know, we don't know what we're getting really um, from him in terms of experience the sort of level we need him to. So what we said, uh, the fear of the unknown, and you can go ahead and, and, and go back in our archive to watch what we said, but in hindsight, um, we also were encouraged on that day that uh, we sort of gave ourselves encouragement to get behind it, but Les Reed from day one threw Pellegrino under the bus. You know, he said in his, in his conference or his, or his press uh, statement, uh, Maurizio believes with the quality we have, we can play exciting, attacking football, taking the game to our opponents for, by playing a high press intensity game. You're right. I mean, Pellegrino was thrown under the bus. I mean, I don't, I'm not to excuse him. I mean, I think in hindsight, Pellegrino should have been sacked uh, if, if not at Christmas shortly after. Uh, and he wasn't the most inspiring of managers. But there were mitigating circumstances. Uh, firstly, he inherited the Virgil van Dijk problem, which meant that we were trying to appease van Dijk and try and get him to, A, actually play and uh, with any sort of effort and commitment for us, and B, to complete the seasons with us, with us. And as we now know, neither of that happened. But the manager had to do that, which meant that we kept rotating Yoshida, Stevens and Hope around and we conceded soft goals, which in turn was the same problem Puel had when he'd lost Fonte and Van Dijk to in and Van Dijk to injury the season before, where he had to shut up shop, give up the, any sort of thought, thoughts of attacking and concentrate on preventing the defence from being run out and, and being exposed. So he had that problem. Secondly, he had the problem of Virgil... Uh, Charlie Austin getting injured in December, which meant any thoughts that Pellegrino might have had of now he's got his feet under the table and trying to attack once they got rid of Van Dyke and perhaps went with what they had and maybe even signing a central defender in January, they all went out the window. So he wasn't just thrown under the bus, he was thrown under a bus station, to be honest. <laughs> we will obviously touch upon it a little bit more. Um, cast your mind back to pre-season. Five games played... 
Started off in Switzerland against St. Gallen, uh, beaming hot sunshine, sort of similar to what today is. And then we go to Brentford, pouring down typical British summer, 2-2, followed by a 3-0 win at St. Etienne, and then a 4-0 defeat at home to Augsburg, again pouring a rain and then finishing off the pre-season with Sevilla, a 2-0 win. Yeah, I mean, the quality of the squad, in my mind, uh, was good enough. It's certainly better than the league possession position it was. But we didn't make the key signings that were needed. I mean, Saints' problems, in my mind, go back to January of last season when Fonte, who had been wanting away for four months, was not replaced. Uh, then we had Van Dijk injured. And in the summer, we didn't learn our lessons. We bought in hope as a replacement for, for Fonte. But we knew what the situation was with Virgil van Dijk and we should have dealt with it. So it just didn't happen. You, you can't... You can make some excuses to Pellegrino. He wasn't given the best of, of situations to work with, with what was going on, but he didn't make the best of those situations either. He wasn't experienced. Uh, and it, it, there was just the thought that some people were coaches and some people were managers, and he was he was a coach. And the pre-season results, I mean, two wins, two draws, one loss, very much underwhelming, though. I mean... In, in some parts of those games, you were encouraged by some of the play. I mean, especially defeating Sevilla 2-0, Champions League regulars. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't pay much attention to pre-season friendlies. Uh, uh, you know, m most of the games, you have sort of anything between 16 to 22 players playing in them. You just don't know whether the other side are putting 100% into it or where they are in their training. You don't know where we are. I mean... I, you know, I remember watching Ian Bramford's first games for Saints in 1991 where he won every pre-season friendly 4-0 and then we lost the first six games out of seven or something like that. You know, you just can't judge on it. Um, you know, we know what we've got and gone are the days when friendlies had any sort of meaning really apart from, you know, building up fitness and getting a feel for the ball. You know, no, I, I didn't take anything from him, to be fair. And this season, I'm sure we'll speak about it closer to the time as well, that it's also been announced that we will be going to China. That's partly basically a commercial adventure. But you, you've already mentioned um, some of the transfers. So the arrivals uh, last summer, Mario Lamina, 18 million at the time, the club transfer uh, records. Wesley Hoot, 15 million. Jan Bednarek, 6 million. Defenders, not really anything to add to the squad going forward. Well, the defenders are. I mean, let's be perfectly blunt. Our problem last season was the centre of defence. Our real, real problem was the centre of defence. And, you know, Yoshida, wholehearted player, committed to Saints, uh, but fourth choice two years ago when we finished sixth in the league. Jack Stevens, very good on the ball. But two seasons ago, couldn't get a game in Middlesbrough's championship mm. side. Um, in reality, would you have would you swap Yoshida and Steve? Would you have swapped Yoshida and Stevens for Fonte and Van Dyke or Fonte and Alderweireld or even Fonte and Lovren? The answer is no. Neither of them were up to it to that standard. Wesley Hope, good signing, I, I I thought, and I still think he's a good signing in the fact that people don't realise he's the youngest of them. People people go on and say about Jack Stevens, oh, he's one for the future. Jack Stevens is 24. He's older than Wesley Hoot. Wesley Hoot should have been coming here, pl playing, in a new, playing in a new league, playing in a higher standard of league. He should have been sitting inside someone like Virgil van Dijk or Fonte, experienced, knows it, helps him get, get his feet. And he didn't. Instead, he found himself in a car crash of a defence. He will come good, I think, Wesley Hoot. If they get the right man to play alongside him, he will come good. Bednarek? Yeah, uh, Bednarek. Uh, one for came, the future, really, wasn't came, he? Yeah, he was signed for five million. He's one for the future. He didn't play to the final games of the season, but when he did play, he looked, he looked like he, he could really be one for the future. And... and I will bring in here, maybe just jumping forward a, a, a section or two sections, that whilst people, this time last year, we were talking about the signings that had been underwhelming for Saints under Claude Puel, yet the two people who came through in the final third of the season and were player of the year and runner-up in player of the year, respectively, in Alex McCarthy and Pierre-Emile Hosberg were uh, Les Reed signings and for the future. So... We haven't failed on as many signings as people have thought about, but 
We just need to make the right signings, and that's been the problem. We've signed them in areas that we don't we don't need them. There were also um, some departures as well, and, and as I say. Perhaps there was something lacking for us in the attacking third this season. But we let Jay Rodriguez go to West Brom in the summer for 12 minutes. And we let Kuko Martina go on a free to Everton, not really in, in the future plans anyway. Mm. Jordi Classy went to Club Bruges in Belgium on loan. And Sam Gallagher and Harrison Reed loaned out the Championship, Birmingham and Norwich City. Right. I mean, Sam Gallagher, Harrison Reed, again, uh, I'm, I probably said this last year, uh, because I say it every year, the one thing I've ever, only one thing I've ever agreed with Harry Radnap, he said, if you get to 21, 22 years old and you haven't established at the level that you want to play at, you ain't never going to get there. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. You know, Harrison Reed is now, I don't know, 22, 23. Mm. Um, only played so, a handful of games already last season. Yeah, what, so, so, one or two under Koeman. Sam Gallagher. Um, yeah, I mean, wholehearted player, but is he really above championship level? He's, he's, been a little bit inconsistent at both Blackburn and uh, Birmingham. He showed he could score goals, but, you know, not with consistency. Uh, I hope they, they do well. I hope they have a great career. But I think maybe that it's going to have to, if they're going to kickstart it, do that away from Southampton. Mm. And, of course, the bottom line was that Virgil van Dijk stayed. The amount of stick and banter that we caught, of, uh, you know, between the Liverpool fans and us. And I think we all knew van Dijk was going to leave us. Eventually he was. But in hindsight, uh, obviously, R Ralph Kruger and, and, and Les Reed mm. wanted to put a foot down in the summer saying, no, we are not a selling club. But he stayed. But at what cost did it give to well, well, against the team? Well, people should learn a lesson from what's happened over the last year. Uh, you know, we've a structure here. You can have three structures in the Premier League. And that is you can be one of the big six and you can throw more money than, you, you know, than reasonable at a problem. And because you know if, if that fails, you've got the money again next year and you've got more than enough to spend it. So you're either one of the big six, you can pay sky-high wages, you can buy players each year and discard them 18 months later mm. if they don't work out. Uh, or you can do what West Brom, Stoke and Swansea have done, which is they build a team, which ultimately no one wants. Why, why haven't West Brom, Stoke and Swansea really sold players with the same... Uh, frequency we have the answer is because their players aren't good enough that they haven't signed the players they haven't spent a lot more money than us or a lot less money than us in some respects but they just haven't made the signings where they haven't discovered the Virgil van Dyke's and Virgil van Dyke was 12 million mm. they spent more than that at a central defender at the time why didn't they do it so there's a lot to be said for our structure so the other structure is you do what we do and that means discovering players bringing them through and then selling them on. Now, does that make us a selling club? No, it makes us a well-structured progressive club because it is the only way forward. And personally, I would rather have Virgil van Dijk in our ranks for two years and sell him at a 55 million profit than I would Yoshida as our first choice centre-half in the last two years. So if we're not selling players, we're failing as a structure. People won't like to hear that because people still think but it's all about keeping your players. But Virgil van Dijk should have shown our entire fan base that it isn't that we want to sell. We refused to sell Virgil van Dijk. And look what happened. Mm. Didn't try. In the end, stopped playing. In the end, we had to remove him from the squad and just flog him. And that is the point. And when you look at what Virgil van Dijk is on now, you can see why he wanted to do it. I don't think it's right that he did it. He's got no morals, he's got no ethics, but you can see why he wanted to do it. If you were being offered what a package which is effectively three to four times what you're on, would you not want to demand a move? But if we ain't selling players, we're failing. If we are selling players, we're succeeding because we're, we're continuing the progress. And if we continue to do that well, then we'll, we'll flourish. And the, But... Can we keep doing it? We have to, because we've no other choice. Otherwise, we become a Stoke or a West Brom who are, who are signing average players of the division who aren't really setting it alight, and eventually you go down. You, you mentioned selling Jay Rodriguez. Uh, Was he past his, his best before date? Well, it, well, why did West Brom go down? Because they bought a player at £12 million who has never really... 
injury sadly has wrecked his career mm. but he hadn't done it in two to three years back with Saints only in in little bursts he had no consistency and he probably did that with West Brom and that's why because we they would go off and sign Jay Rodriguez at 12 million we'll go off and sign Sadio Mane at 12 million but sadly, you only keep him for two years. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight as well, if we look back at Van Dijk, his attitude was poison. It was absolutely poison. And I think we should have just cut our losses. But you go back to, you know, you say that people look, won't like to hear it, but fans are becoming so frustrated in the manner that we do our, our dealings now. We, we want to keep hold of our best players. We want to show some ambition. But do you think the ambition for the, for the board is to continuously sell and, and progress? Well, well, that is ambition because what the Virgil van Dijk situation showed us last year is words mean nothing. Words mean nothing. It's actions. And ambition, I mean, let's be blunt, for Virgil van Dijk, he, he will sit there today feeling justified because he's now on three times the money. He's in a Champions League final. You know, that's why he left Saints. But, you know, ambition isn't saying that we're, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It's actually doing it. Uh, and perhaps, you know, playing devil's advocate, it wouldn't surprise me if the club, the club knew what Virgil van Dijk was going to be like. They put their foot down because not only did they have to try and show the player and our rest of our players that they would, wouldn't just sell and roll over when someone rolled up with a checkbook, but they had to show the fans what the consequences are of making players stay because it isn't 1982. Players mm. aren't under contract and you, with no freedom of contract. And Virgil van Dijk showed us a state of football that players ultimately don't care two hoots about the football club they're playing for. They kiss the badge and they look at their bank account. Okay, so let, let's get on, on track then to the to results. So let's start in August then. First three games, uh, a nil-nil draw at home with Swansea. We absolutely dominated that game. We had about 75% possession and everybody in the football club were thinking, OK, so good performance, good, good spell of possession, but we couldn't find the back of the net. That's followed up by uh, a last-minute win against West Ham at home from a Charlie Austin uh, penalty. That was 3-2. And then that was followed up that, that week later at home, a loss in the Carabao Cup to Wolverhampton Wanderers. Who was the championship team that day? What, when we played Wolves? Yeah. Well, we, we didn't even have a championship team out. We played a complete reserve side, roughly. So, and so they play, played to Wolves. They, they've, they've come up now and they look excellent. And, and for me, Wolves probably easily top half next season. Uh, we've got a little bit of backing. Wolves have probably got more structure to stay up than, than most, most teams. Uh, to be honest... It wasn't a bad start, but it showed what the problems would be going forward. Because, mm. uh, you know, Swansea, we couldn't score. And too often we were playing wide play. And this is where it started to go wrong in the fact that we had a formation that relied on pushing two wide men forward and having two fullbacks overlap and cross into the box. And we had a five foot five centre forward in Gabbiadini who, who's it's not his sort of game. And people worry, what well, wonder why we don't get goals. West Ham at home, we're 2-0 up, we're coasting and we give away two soft goals and they're back in the game. Um, that, that tells you why we, we didn't attack as much because after that, we couldn't defend. So uh, we went there, but things got better and we moved forward there. We, we did and, and we went to Huddersfield the week after that, another frustrating day. You know, you could say that we were the better side that day in, in, the, in the hot sunshine of the bank holiday weekend, followed up by... Uh, a 2-0 loss at home to Watford and then we go to Crystal Palace we win 1-0 uh, albeit Crystal Palace seven games without a win and a goal at that point in the this, in this season Mario Lamina puts a man in the match performance in and uh, Palace the worst time uh, of the season for them and we're looking at Mario Lamina and I think we've got a good player here this guy's class yeah I mean I mean Huddersfield Huddersfield at the time looks a good point because Huddersfield had stormed into the Premier League. I think they won the previous three games in the Premier League. They were technically top of the league, if that mm. meant anything that time. So going there, uh, we got stronger in that game. I think Lamina came on a sub and started showing his class. And we should have won it in the end. I think Brian Bertrand missed a, a point-blank header in the last sort of minutes. Um, could have changed the season, who knows? But we didn't. But we got a point there. We went to Palace, and let's be honest, you know, they... they 
battled hard and it it was a good win because a win's a win. It's three points. Ultimately, went a long way to keeping us up. Mm. You can only beat what's in front of you. And at that stage, you sort of thought, we're not playing well. The manager's got issues with Van Dijk. He's got issues here and that. And yet we're still sort of on the fringes of the top 10. So at that stage, but the crowd were already on his back. You know, I've, I don't know why we bother with Mark Hughes sometimes because we had enough people who tell me they could see from the first game that Maurizio Pellegrino was not the manager for the club. So, you know, perhaps, you know, they should be running the club. <laughs> Um, so the rest of September and then into October, uh, it was a 1-0 defeat at home to Manchester United. We go up to Stoke, we lose 2-1. Peter Crouch once again popping up with a goal, uh, followed by a 2-2 home draw with Newcastle. Gabby Adini on the score sheet twice that day. And then uh, a 1-0 win against West Brom. Buffal's won the goal. And I'm going to cut to what you said after that game. The Moroccan Messi paid a bit of his price tag back. Moroccan Messi, yeah, that's it. I mean, to be fair, he did nothing afterwards. I took him off, but uh, great goal. Someone said to me coming out, is this the best individual goal ever scored at St Mary's? And I'd be interested to see if anyone can name anything else which is very similar. So Wiz uh, stepping in on interview duty there. But the Moroccan Messi, have you ever seen a better goal, individual better goal at St Mary's? No, I mean, I'd still say that. I mean, I, and I mean, the dichotomy of the season is people say that various players didn't contribute much, but even the players, and one of them being Buffal, did contribute. Uh, and that goal, again, got two points. It was, uh, and as much as not perhaps beating Huddersfield away or, or losing here or there, beating West Brom, you've sort of thought at the time we may have turned the corner. Mm. You know, we we beaten West Brom, we were side down with us, and certainly the loss of that two points could have been could have made the last day of the season here very, very, very worrying. Mm. But it didn't. We got it. I mean, Buffon. You it, know, was, it was an amazing goal. He, he runs from the edge of our eighteen-yard box, takes it through about four defenders. It's like watching a cartoon, and and he he, he sort mm. of takes it past two West Brom defenders they crash into each other like on, on a sketch yeah. show and then he kind of slides it in the bottom corner but one thing I, I wasn't really impressed with uh, despite it being a, such a, a wonderful goal was his celebration you know he, he runs right in the face of Mauricio Pellegrino it was a message that he was trying to send that mm. I want to be in that team well that, that was the first sign that perhaps all was not well with the squad that Pellegrino was a coach you know you've got to admit you cannot imagine him doing that to Mark Hughes mm. uh, you you know Pellegrino would probably you know have done well alongside Mark Hughes as a coach or, or any manager but he wasn't a manager he didn't command respect he didn't have the aura about him and I mean I would say Buffon would be frustrated I mean the problem we've got good players when, when we had Ronald Koeman here we were based on having a rock-tight defence that didn't give goals away, that let someone like Sadio Mane run riot over the season. Sadio Mane could run at players and know that if he gave the ball away, that the defence would win it back and then we'd start again. But it's the opposite in the last two seasons. Uh, we've had someone like Buffal time and time again know if they give the ball away, even in the final third of the field, that the opposition are more than likely run up and score because we, you know, we, we can't handle attacks on the break and we have that right up to West Ham and Newcastle this season. Uh, and Claude Puel, to be fair, in hindsight, uh, coached us to a good final third of the season because he accepted that he, he didn't have the defence to do that. He got everyone behind the ball and concentrated on just going and trying to go on the break and take chances from set pieces. Not good to watch but he got us to eighth place. Mm. Whereas Pellegrino, it went the other way. And, you know, that's why people get frustrated because, you know, if you're trying to do your job at one end as an attacker, and every time you give the ball away, someone scores at the other end, which happened at Newcastle and West Ham away in the final games of it, last eight games of the season, it's frustrating. I mean, ultimately, Buffal won't go down in the history books as a great player for Saints, but he could have been, and that goal showed he could have been. Uh, but sadly... It's not to be. Yeah, and, and the end of October, before the clocks went back, well, it might have been the weekend that the clocks did go back, we finish off 
um, the autumn with a 1-1 draw with Brighton at the Amex. And for me, that was a first real sign of failing to defend the lead. Uh, a free header on the back post and... Eventually, there's so many times you can count on two hands this season that Cedric was, has beaten far too easily, too too easy on the back post. Well, firstly, uh, you know, just to sort of it wasn't the first sign because Stoke away had shown we got back in the game at Stoke and then let and then conceded in injury time to Peter Crouch and another soft goal on the break. Mm. You know, West Ham at home we'd given away a two-goal lead. You know, it was coming. I mean, the problem was that. Cedric is not your tallest man, and to be fair to Brighton, they they caught us. We we were the better side that day, and they weren't a bad side at the time. I mean, they hadn't lost. I think they'd lost one game at home at that stage, yeah. and that was Man City or someone like that. Uh, I think, unfortunately, it's one of those situations. They threw it. They threw it into the back post, and you've got Glenn Murray up against Cedric, and he gets out jumped. Uh, you're always going to get that. Every club gets it if you're playing short players. You just try and minimise uh, minimise your, your exposure to it. And unfortunately, we don't... In, in Yoshida and Stevens, we didn't have two defenders who could read the game and be there. The number of times that sort of thing would happen, say, under Koeman, and you'd have someone like Van Dijk or Fonte read the game and drop to the back post and just mm. clear the danger, but we didn't. We didn't have much of a leader in, the, in, in the back. And I think also Van Dijk was, was excluded from that team at, at that point in the season as well, wasn't he? I'm not sure if Van Dijk played him. I think he may have played, but the, the fact was anyone watching could see he was at half pace. Yeah. You know, he... he you know, he was still... A, to be fair, he was still worth his place, you know, ahead of you know, a couple of our players in the back, but he wasn't interested. Mm. And ultimately, he wasn't going to go out and get hurt. And that's why they removed him from the squad in December completely, because they knew with a move pending, he wasn't going to risk getting another long-term injury and blowing it all out the water. And, uh, you know, you could see it. But, I mean, Brighton, for me, was a good point in the fact that they're a good home side, Brighton. Mm. Uh, you, you know, we went there. We got a point. Things looked okay at that stage. Yeah, I mean, after thirteen points, ten games played. Uh, sorry, ten games played, thirteen points. I mean, you think that's an okay return? But actually, Dan sends in the clip, uh, which is interesting. Having thought about this, having reflected on this season, I think you could trace it back all the way to maybe even pre-season when we had those two friendlies at home. We lost four 0 against Augsburg, a mediocre Bundesliga team. Um, we just did not show up that day. And then we went off and beat Sevilla, Champions League regular side, 2-0. So the inconsistency was clearly there. And then I remember when the fixtures first came out for the Premier League, we were really happy because we thought we, were, we got a really good run in for the start of the season. We thought we'd be quite high up the table at the beginning because we had three home games and an away trip to the new, a newly promoted side, arguably the worst one, technically, because it was Huddersfield, obviously they'd won the playoffs. Um, and we only got five points from those four games. So he says the warning signs date, but all the way back to pre-season. Um, I think it, it makes a good point that the, the first few games for us were favourable and we, we, we didn't make the best of a, of a perhaps a favourable situation. Yeah, you know, you, you can look at it. I mean, I, mean, I, I still think sometimes the fixtures the fixtures can affect your league position you know you could you could win the league or get relegated on the basis of when you actually met a team I mean for argument's sake we met Crystal Palace at exactly the right time seven games on the bounce in the middle of it we met Huddersfield at exactly the wrong time because they're they're three games three straight wins I think they'd had and they're coming back to their own fans who were suddenly dreaming of all sorts of things you know, we'd met them at exactly the right time. And you could say that about any team. You know, you 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 can only play what's in front of you. The warning signs have been there, as I say, since last season under Claude Puel, when Jose Fonte did ex did something very similar to Van Dyke. It was almost a mirror image of Van Dyke's situation. Mm. Um, you know, the warning signs have been there. And it comes back to that we didn't address, that you build a side with a, a, a strong central defence, 
strong central midfield and a good centre forward. Um, I think we had a strong central midfield, but, you know, Pellegrino didn't seem to know who we should play in the centre of it, I think, at times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and we move into the winter. So November starts with a home new, a home defeat to get against Burnley. Once again, another unchallenged header. Uh, Sam Vokes popping up about seven minutes from time. And at that point, there was a storm already brewing. The point for me at which... I, I kind of felt that Pellegrino wasn't going to be the uh, the manager um, that we clearly needed to to get this squad playing was um, the Burnley game, fourth of November. The game's going nowhere. It's nil nil. You know, Sean Dyche does his job as manager, changes it, brings on Sammy Vokes, and goes four four two, and um, with their only I believe it was their only shot of the game. Scores a goal. Okay, go one nil up. Pellegrino did nothing. He did nothing except make odd substitutions. It all went downhill from there, really, for me. So booze ring around St Mary's from from the Burnley game, and Darren thinks uh, it goes all downhill from there. Good. He makes some good points there in the fact that you, he's quite right. Sean Dykes made changes. Pellegrino didn't. Ah, uh, but Pellegrino. If it, the writing's on the wall because what happened against Burnley started happening on a more regular basis. Yeah. Sam Vokes had a free header, a completely unmarked header, and that was the start of a run of free headers which and mistakes which have gone on right to the final goal of the season. You know, the final final day of the season encompass the entire season. A breakaway goal in which one of our defenders is left for dead and they score a goal in the last minute of injury time. It's the story of the season. And Burnley, although that wasn't the last minute, I think there's about 16, 17 minutes to go, encompassed it. And if I was Pellegrino, I would, would have been tearing my hair out of that stage because, yeah, Darren is right. It's, it, you know, his tactics weren't there. But then again, Ronald Koeman's tactics weren't exactly you know, groundbreaking even. It was just get people who could defend, keep it nil-nil, and get people who can run and frighten people with pace. And that's mm. what we what we did. But if you're a manager, you've, you've got every right to ask the players you've got to do the job they're being paid to do. And if you're a central defender, that is marked players and not give them a free header seven yards out to win a game of football late on, which happened time and time again. And that goes back again to... Pellegrino being thrown under the bus by Saints and failure to sign a centre-half to play alongside Wesley Hoot. Uh, you know, I'm sorry this is starting to become a sort of anti, <laughs> you know, Yoshida strokes Jack Stevens result. But the fact is it happened time and time again. And the Burnley game was the first time it came up. And Darren we never learned there. from our mistakes, did we? Well, it's not about learning. You can't learn... You know, Pellegrino probably did learn from his mistakes, but he had no one else to put in. There was a funny catchphrase Pellegrino always came out in his interviews. We are learning. We must improve. It sounded like they were, they were pushing it on to every single player in their press interviews. We are learning. We must improve. We got fed up and tired of it by January came. I feel some sympathy with Pellegrino there because if I was at a manager and my defence was time and time again conceding soft goals and at times I struggle to think of a goal, you know, I can't think of a goal where any, you know, of the standard of Buffal scored against us. Every goal that we've got comes came down comes down to some sort of error somewhere. You know, right at the end of the season, Man City, error. Everton away, error. You know, and it's it comes down to that. Players not doing their job. So what does Pellegrino say apart from we're learning? One thing he's learning is that time and time again the same players make the same errors and concede goals. If I was Pellegrino, I'd look back at that and say, we don't concede against Burnley, we don't concede against Stoke, we don't concede against uh, it was Arsenal in the last minute, and 15 minutes to go, 1-0 up against Palace before we gave away. Yeah. There's, there's about eight points dropped. Those eight points dropped, we've probably been 10. Yeah, and, and the guys from the Saints FC podcast, Tom and John, make a very good point, and actually echoing your points about unforced errors this season. Lots of people are saying that this season was unforgivable and you know the fact that we sailed so close to disaster um, was unforgivable and probably mainly because we could all see it happening as fans yeah, but, uh, that was that was frustrating but then you go back and you say the players like come on like fundamentally like 
do the players not shoulder any of this blame? Like, yeah, of course, Les Reed and Krieger should have made some better decisions. And yes, they could have made a more inspired appointment. Does it, is it Les Reed and Kruger against Huddersfield at home that can't defend a simple cross into the box and leave a six foot four forward three yards out for a free header? No. Is it Kruger and Reed that are trying to Cruyff turn away at, Bright, at Bournemouth when we're 1 0 up and we give the ball away and we can see 1 0? There, I mean, how many? So Wes- Wesley Hoot is to blame for this season. <laughs> no, is but like, but, to, but what I mean is like, the, of course, you know, they they could have made better decisions, but yeah. fundamentally, like, we're not a, we're not a bad team, right? We're not a bad team. We have made so many unenforced errors this season, and that's what's cost us. Like, if we'd have made, if we'd have got the ball out of the box, and we should have got the ball out of the box, and just been a bit stronger mentally. We'd, we'd have probably finished about 10th and this whole season would have been totally fine. So absolutely spot on for me. You know, Les Reed and, and Ralph Kruger, they're not the ones on the pitch. You know, they're always the one that sort of take all the blame. But I think we're also getting a bit ahead of our station here. Um, we've, we've only just mentioned the Burnley result, but we go on to lose 3-0 away from Liverpool. And then we, we, uh, we beat Everton at home, another team at their worst. Again, another last minute loss at Manchester City. Bournemouth, a 1-1 draw at the Vitality. And then another free header conceded the lead against Arsenal at home, followed by what was probably the worst performance of the season, a 4-1 defeat, absolutely embarrassed by a former manager, Claude Puel. And that, for me, was the first real indication at the board to the board that we've got a serious problem here. I say this a lot. It's never about what you've just done. It's about what you do next. And, you know, I, I find it strange because, you know, I don't really have that many favourites amongst players. I look at players and try and with having to do things like this and put my opinion on the line or whether I write about it or say it on here or wherever, I try and be constructive about it. Now, Wesley, who got and still gets a lot of abuse, he's done one Cruyff turn, but he hasn't done another. He hasn't made another mistake. He hasn't been caught on the ball on a Cruyff turn again. Because he learnt his lesson. Mm. Yet, as we say, Burnley, free header. Mm. Huddersfield, free header. You know, the same players aren't good, aren't good enough. And that's, that's the problem. They're all great. They all give their... They're all, and the, the simplistic thing is, yeah, the problem is I don't like slagging someone off like Yoshida because he's a 100% committed player. He's been here five, six years and give him good service. But he's been here, I think this is his sixth season, and he's just about at 120 Premier League games. So that's telling you something. So it's good service. But we can have a team full of people giving good service. We can rename it Stoke City or West Brom, and we can end up like them. We've got to keep progressing. And the manager is right. I mean, I don't, I'm not making excuses because, yeah, if... If the players had kept him out, we would, as the guy said there, probably finished 10th and this season wouldn't be seen as a disaster. Mm. But it, it, it doesn't it iron over the cracks really there. Yeah, going back, Huddersfield, exactly the same as Burnley. Batter him for 89 minutes. They get a free header in front of goal and score it. Uh, you know, Liverpool away was the first time for me that I thought this is a team in complete disarray. Yeah, in trouble. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I have the misfortune that day to be invited up into a uh, corporate box in <laughs> Liverpool. That's but, right, because we had to sell your ticket. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which meant that I sat next to uh, several football agents and various people who condescendingly tapped me on the shoulder every time a goal went in. <laughs> and in the end, even they felt sorry for me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, fact of, the fact of the matter is that that day... I thought that we were stuffed because I, I thought there is a team that is just in total disarray. And, you know, it's clear. I mean, clearly Van Dyke was having an effect on the team. He didn't really care yeah. and he was at Liverpool. Ironically, we went on the following week, beat Everton 4-1. And all of a sudden, you know, we finish up in October. I think we, I don't know about whether it was end of October, start of November. We're in ninth position, mm. which was a solid enough start for a team in a little bit of disarray, given the mitigating circumstances. And then we lost Charlie Austin, the player who was a top scorer and still remained our top scorer. Yeah. 
So the rest of December, again, you've already touched upon it, but a, a free header against Huddersfield, De Poitra, again, sort of near the end, uh, we go up to Chelsea, we lose 1-0 to Marcus Alonso, free kick, and the rest of December made up with an embarrassing defeat on Boxing Day, 5-2 against Tottenham, and the end of December, perhaps a slight positive, uh, Alex McCarthy returns in goal because of Fraser Force's complete incompetence for the most of this season, a 0-0 draw at Old Trafford, you would have taken that uh, if when the teams were announced that Alex McCarthy was in goal. Yeah, I mean, I think you're being a, a little bit unfair on Forster uh, in the fact that Forster had some good games and the dichotomy of the Chelsea game was that Forster was magnificent in that game, but he made a mistake. Now, most people said, oh, he was too slow getting down. He wasn't too slow getting down. He'd set the wall up wrongly and mm. that was his mistake. Forster's a, and I feel sorry for Forster because Forster was a player in complete uh, lack of confidence. Yeah. And he had in front of him good centre-halves make good goalkeepers. The good trouble is for me, I don't think I, never, I ever saw him communicate. I don't see, I, didn't, I never saw him uh, come out of his box, you know, take control of the football when it comes over in the corner. He never came off his line. No, I, you're right there. I think one thing, and this is why McCarthy did a lot more for Saints in the second half of the season than Forster did in the first, is that McCarthy came off his line. I mean, in the defeat at Swansea, a feature, uh, you know, people say, yeah, yeah, McCarthy was possibly man of the match at Swansea. Uh, a lot of, that was the fans. A lot of the media said that Wesley Hoot was. Yeah. Because McCarthy didn't have a lot of saves to make that game. He had three saves to make. Two were bog standard and one was fairly decent. But what he did well was he just kept coming off his... When the ball was hoofed into the box, he just kept coming off his line and punching it yeah. in the main. Sometimes he caught it, but if he was under pressure, he punched it and got it out of danger. And that's what he brought to the side because Forster didn't do that. But at the end of the day, people, you know, we weren't conceding that much. I mean, Forster, say, they play... If you look at the stats, Forster and McCarthy played roughly the same amount of games. Mm. Uh Forster made a lot more saves than McCarthy made. Uh, but, it, you know, McCarthy did what was needed. And that was, we got two centre-halves who can't ever ball. So if you, at least if the goalkeeper comes off the line and makes a few punches, you cut out at least five free headers yeah. a game. <laughs> uh, so he did well. But Forster, Forster had some good games at Palace away. He was good. He, he made a couple of crucial saves, did everything you want. But at the end of the day, it's a defence in disarray. Mm. And, you know, I think Forster's a good goalkeeper. Um, and I think he's just lacking a, a bit of confidence. And, you know, you, he may, you know, sometimes keepers don't get that confidence back. But I think, you know, he's big enough to do that. Carthy, great thing. And it had to be made. The change had to be yeah. made at the time. Um you know, I would say in the second half of the season, McCarthy conceded some sloppy goals. I mean, you you know, if that punched goal at Watford, which um, which we might come to later, I'm sure, you know, personally, when I was there at the time, I thought the goalkeeper was too slow coming off the line mm. to come out for the ball. And there's lots of goals this season when I've seen and I thought, if Forster had let that in, he'd be getting a lot of stick. But that's not to take anything away from Alex McCarthy. He's a di he, he came in at the right time, possibly maybe a few weeks earlier might have helped, but he came in at the right time and he did a very good job. Uh, but, you know, I, I just think we like a good scapegoat here and Forster is a good scapegoat for, for some. I think you're dead right. And, and, and I think it was perhaps overdue to see. And I think a few of us perhaps were surprised to see Alice McCarthy just start in such a high profile game at Old Trafford against Man United. Yeah, because let's face it, in the previous eight, I mean, he hadn't played a first team game. I think his only first team games up to that game at Man United, he played two League Cup games the previous season. Yeah. He kept clean sheets, but against Sunderland, he had very little to do. And I think he played against, who did we play? Sunderland and Palace. Yeah. So, you know, there's not many people really knew whether he's a good goalkeeper or not. And he's, he's, he's actually taken a long time for him to get back into the first team because not, not, not long after those games, he picked up quite a, quite a bad injury. Yeah. You know, he's, he's worked hard to get back here. And as you say, you know, he went on to make some terrific saves. But that brings us to the end of the 2017. So up next is our January transfers. And we were all saying, you know, everybody that you speak to, where are Saints signings? We were so frustrated. Virgil van Dijk departs. Um, you, you, you make a mockery of it on, on social media with your picture next to your Christmas tree. 
But there's a really interesting question from, from Daniel from the 1885 The Art of on Twitter. Hello, my question for the panel is, what are the learnings from the VVD saga this year? And if we are going to be a pathway, is it possible to keep players for three years rather than two so that we have less upheaval? So I think you've mentioned it already earlier on this video that I think we simply have to be a selling club. But the question is, what are the, what are the learnings of the Virgil van Dijk saga? Of course, it raged on for almost best part of 18 months. If we're going to be a pathway, uh, is it possible to keep players for three years rather than two? The stock answer is it doesn't make a blind bit of difference, I'm afraid. I mean, it's football. Um, contracts mean nothing now. Virgil van Dijk showed us that. Jose Fonte showed us that. And let's be honest, Jose Fonte was a man who was saying how he was going to stay here for life. And all of a sudden, he suddenly wants to be have an engineered move to Manchester United for... Or United. Yeah. Let's keep that loose. Yeah, all United, <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, all contracts do and make sure that you've still got a sell-on fee and that people have got to pay it. Personally, I would... Uh, I think the only way forward, it's not a Saints thing, it's a football thing. You've got to turn around and clubs have got to be able to say, tell you what, if you're not going to play, this gets added on to the end of your contract. Uh, so the longer you, if you refuse to play or you don't give this, we can effectively suspend your contract and it's rolling on. So if you've got a four years left on your contract or three years left and you are refusing to play, then you've... If you don't play for six months, you've still got three years left. And we don't have to pay you. I mean, it's draconian, but something has got to be done. Because what this taught is Virgil van Dijk is you had a player who said, I'm going to do what I want, mm. when I want, and I don't care for the football club. And yet some people say we're still a selling club and roll over. We stood up to everything in that football club. And what did we get out of it? Well, in the end, we got 65 million or whatever. Mm. But at the end of the day, it cost us a lot more than that. It cost us almost relegation from the Premier League. Yeah. So, uh, it's, but we've got to learn from that. And what we've got to learn from it is what we didn't do is what we've done previously. And my, my uh, I knew Virgil van Dijk was going to go. We all knew he was mm. going to go. Eventually. I yeah. mean, when he was dropped from the squad mid-December, we knew he was going to go in January. When he appeared in front of his Christmas tree with his <laughs> Liverpool shirt on Boxing Day or whenever it was, we knew he was going. When we sold him in the first minute of the first day of the transfer window, we all knew he was going. So why did we not sign a replacement? We mm. had three months to think about it. We had 30-odd days to do it, yet we didn't do it. And that, is where we went wrong. Absolutely, and everybody that I spoke to in, in the interviews on on our, on our on our shows, nearly every week they were saying we need a central defender, we need a centre forward. But Ralph Kruger came out that month and really kind of fueled the fire a little bit. Uh, he called us a small club. It was a complete corporate disillusion. The same catchphrases and basically pinning all the blame on Virgil Van Dijk. Well, <laughs> the trouble is. Uh, and, I, you know, I put up an article earlier today on this. Saints PR is absolutely rubbish. I mean, whoever is... Ralph Kruger is tried to tell it how it is. And unfortunately, people don't want to hear that. People... Where, where is Virgil... Where is Ralph Kruger come out and say we're a small club? People will bring up a statement from six years ago when a previous chairman said, we're going to be in the Champions League within five years. Now, we all know that is utter rubbish. We don't have the structure, the infrastructure, the money or anything to do, be able to do that. Leicester bunk the trade, but that's one club in 25 years of the, the, of the Premier League. So, uh, what we've got to look at here is... Whatever's happened this season, whatever Ralph Kruger says, people will twist it to whatever uh, way they want. So we've just got to ignore that. We've got to get on with doing what, what it is and doing it quietly and efficiently. And that's what we didn't do in January. January's a bad window, but we had three months to prepare for that window. In reality, we should have bought, we should have bought Van Dyke's replacement in August and said, there you go, compete mm. for your place. But we didn't. But we had plenty of time to get someone in there. So 
we got to do it early this summer. Yeah, and, and I think our, of course, January, uh, everybody puts their, their prices up, the, the prices are inflated because they know you're in the market for a defender, in the market for a forward, whatever it is. But we eventually make a signing, and it doesn't doesn't uh, you know doesn't impress a lot of the fans. Guido Carrillo arrives from Monaco for 19 million for a transfer record, and it has Maurizio Pellegrino written all over it. They've previously worked together in Estudiantes and know each other through the Argentine connection as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got uh, at this stage Saints are caught within in between a rock and a hard place, you know. Uh, so I had whispers that, you know, Ralph Kruger has famously said that they would consider in, in, sacking him in December, but every time that they were about to do it, his sort of results picked up. And there's a little bit of a degree to that. But, you know, I, I heard that it was something different, allegedly, that, they, that Mark Hughes uh, couldn't agree his departure and his severance pay from Stoke and that they were sort of hanging on for that. But who knows the real truth? You know, people will scream it on Twitter and on the internet and Facebook and tell you that it's the real truth, but who knows? Um, Carrillo, Carrillo, or whoever you want to Carrillo. say. Carrillo. Yeah. <laughs> Unfair to write him off completely. I mean, he's coming to a side. He, he's a player that's played in the Champions League. He scored a reasonable level of goals in France for Monaco, in, in the league and, and the like. He's coming. It's, it's a grossly inflated price. You know, his real value was about 10 million. That's what he went to Monaco for just under that mm. about three years earlier. But transfer values have gone up. Uh, Sigurdsson for Everton from Swansea. 10 million player 18 months ago. Sunday goes to 45 million. Mm. You know, the, the value of players has gone up greatly. So... Do you think that, that pins down to the, the amount of money, the billion pounds... Um, uh, sponsorship from the TV companies now that are inflating all of the prices. Definitely. I mean, none of the money has gone back to the supporters of the clubs. All it's mean is agents ask more money, clubs ask more money. They know we got there. People say that Carrillo didn't score a goal. Mm. But then again, he came into a team that wasn't scoring goals anyway. How many goals did we score? And what we got to remember is, and again, it comes back to a little bit of Buffal, Carrillo, Burnley away, got on the end of a bit of a, a speculative cross, shall we say, which was going out for a goal kick and Carrillo got on the end of it, nodded back perfectly for Gabby Adini and he scored. At the end of the day, that could have meant a fair bit. Carrillo played at West Brom. Uh, I think he had the corner where we scored from uh, our first, our equaliser, I think it was, came from the fact that Carrillo had Stab the ball in the bottom corner. Keepers made a brilliant save. Resulting corner, we score. So Carrillo did do something for this team. You know, again, he didn't score goals. But then again, who did? I mean, I don't think Charlie Austin got many after his return, you know. But Carrillo's only problem was, was he better than Charlie Austin? No. Was he better than Gabby Adini as a goal scorer? No. Um, was he better than Shane Long? No. So, yeah, Carrillo's made, made a... Um, an impression, he's made a small contribution to the side, but we've got three clips coming in from Chris, Jake and Jordan um, who make some very good points of, our, of their lack of um, transfer activity and perhaps what we need to do in the summer. I think the campaign has gone so poorly because of simply because of our transfer dealings. I think Pellegrino's appointment, yes, granted, that was bad, but I think the board have a lot of questions to answer regarding our transfers. Last summer... We needed a real injection. I th I'm never really a fan. Premier League sides bring in a dozen players. And last summer and this summer still, I don't really want us to do that. But we needed more than three. When you consider that Bednarek made, I, I hazard a guess, eight or nine appearances, it must have been. You know, he was never really brought in to be a first choice defender. And outside of him, we had Hoot and we had Lamina. And that was it. For a team that had regressed the season in the season that uh, preceded that window. I think we needed another striker. I think we needed another attacker. We needed 30 million more in investment and we didn't get it. We needed a target man striker and we didn't get either of them in the January transfer window either. Going forward, we simply have to invest this summer. Uh, that's 75 million pounds uh, we received from Liverpool for Van Dijk needs to be spent. And that's not, you know, accounting for the players we could potentially lose. It really wouldn't surprise me that 
you know, Bertrand, Cedric, Lamina, Gabbiadini or Tadic could all leave this summer. Um, I feel like Fraser Force needs to be replaced um, to provide competition to Alex McCarthy. Uh, whereas I feel there are other players, such as uh, Stephen Davis is now getting on a bit. I don't think Oral Romeu is good enough. Um, I really feel investment is key. Um, and this, this now is the time our board really earn their stripes pardon the lame pun but um yeah this this summer is absolutely critical and if and if the board can't you know uh, salvage their reputation following the disaster that was last season or near disaster in a football sense um i think questions should be asked as much as i love charlie austin gabbiadini shane long uh, there's no premier league striker there who will score 15 goals um, Centre-back, I think everyone would agree. I mean, Hoyt, bit hit and miss. Jack Stevens, still not quite got the experience we're after. Neither has Begnarek. There's talks of Yoshida going. He's the only real leader we've got. So let's go out and buy a 20, 30 million pound defender and a 20, 30 million pound striker. So Chris says the, the lack of injection. Jake says the investment is, is key and Jordan, you know, we're just speaking just off camera there. Uh, he reckons that Yoshida is our only leader, but we need to have a 30 million, 20 million pound defender or striker. All three people make good points there. Not all of their points uh, I agree with, but ultimately the gist of them is right. Um, We're all saying the same things. Yeah. Why, why can't the, the board wake up to this? Mm. Well, you, they're right. I mean, what this needs... Again, it comes back to what I'm saying. It's not what we just done, it's what we do next. I mean, saying if the board wake up, it's not quite as simple as that. I, I'm sure if Les Reed could go out and just say, I've got 45 million in here left over from Virgil van Dijk, I can sign the three, two central, a central defender and a striker for 25 million a piece that I want to sign. He'd go out and do that. Because let's face it, we all like an easy life. So if Les Reed can get up in the morning, nine o'clock, sign a 25 million central defender of his own choice, choice by 11 o'clock have the rest of the day off to play golf he'll do that but he can't so what we've got to look at is it's a mixture I think of partly the fact that perhaps they've got too complacent perhaps they thought that Stevens and Yoshida were leaders but uh, you know or perhaps they couldn't get the men so we've got to forget what we've done because what we've done doesn't matter now the moment we the final whistle went on the final day of the season Nothing mattered anymore. We were still in the Premier League. We've got to look at our mistakes and go. So, squad does need a clear out for one reason or another. Some people would go, some not. I reckon, at a conservative estimate, someone like Ryan Bertrand goes, fair play to Ryan Bertrand. He's given four good years. If a big club comes in for him, give him big money. Ah. Uh, you know, I, for one, would applaud him for his, his contribution to the football club and let's see him go. So I reckon we could raise anywhere between 40 to 60 million from the sale of players who are surplus to requirements. So then it's all about spending it wisely. Um, so if you add the money we've got left over from Virgil van Dijk, and you've got to remember when our friend there said 75 million from Virgil van Dijk, I think it was a little bit less than that. But then you've got to remember that you've got to give 10 million to Celtic mm. then you've got to pay agents fees you've got to pay the agent to sell your own player then you've got to look at signing on loyalty bonus all sorts of rubbish so you end up 75 million probably ends up near a 50 of which we spent 20 but we still should have 30 odd million left of it um, and what we've also got to remember is that part of our wage structure is all about the fact that we can pay decent wages because we're about the seventh or eighth biggest wage payer in the Premier League the fact that we can pay that on 32,000 gates is down to the fact that we have to subsidise the money we get in from income from other sources and part of that's going to be transfer fees part of that's going to be the Premier League money so if we can sell players for 40 let's say conservatively 40 million and we can rake in 30 million, 35 million still left over from Van Dyke as a net payment. That gives us 70 million to spend. The squad's too heavy. What we need to do, we need to go and buy 
a quality central defender, as we've said earlier, 25 million. Could someone like Ben Gibson, perhaps from Middlesbrough, mm-hmm. proven at a premiership level, knows what he's doing, etc. Experienced. We need to go out and get a good striker, probably two good strikers. And then we need to go and say, do we, if Bertrand goes, is target the man to replace him possibly? Or do we go and buy out others? So central defender, striker, at least. Possibly two strikers, because the guy makes a point there about, you know, Long's probably getting on a bit. Gabby Diniago, Austin's injury prone. So maybe two. Mm. Um, midfield, centre midfield, if we hold Lamina, we hold Romeo. We hold Hoiberg. There's three good central defenders. You've got Ward Prowse who can always play there. We're okay there. Mm. What? But the key to it is going to be, A, buying wisely. And it's right, we don't need to buy six, seven players for 70 million. We need to buy three. And when we've got three, the question is utilising the players that we've got. Lamina, as we said earlier in the, you know, the first part of the season, came on we thought he's going to be a good player and at times he's looked very good and at times he's looked very poor that's down to management that's down to playing him so if we hold Lamina in the squad and get him playing to his ability he will be key same as McCarthy if he does well same as Hope if we get Hope playing to his ability alongside someone experienced that's key Bednarek can we bring him on from what he's done in the last five games for us and make him play a big part next season. That's key. And then this key to players like Nathan Redmond. Nathan Redmond is another scapegoat, but ultimately came on, headed a goal against Everton. Redmond's a player who, again, he's got Sadio Mane. People forget with Sadio Mane. Sadio Mane was awful for his last season, here for most of his last season, then exploded in the last seven, eight games. Didn't ultimately score, didn't score that many Goals and Redmond scored in the season placing him. But you've got to get Redmond playing because he's undoubtedly got the ability. Too many people wrote him off early on because he was being forced to play up front. Pure made that stupid statement <laughs> about him. Yeah. And people wrote him off. But ultimately, Redmond's a good player. But it comes back to having confidence. Because when someone like Redmond is a confidence player, when you run at players, you want to know that you run at players, we get the ball back. And too often, Redmond, you've given the ball away and they go up and score. So everyone blames Redmond. Yeah. Whereas if he gives the ball away, we win it back and we go again. People are saying to him, get at him, go and run at him, scare him. But everyone's too scared. Mm. So the key is several things. Selling the players to the right places, buying three, maybe four key players and getting the best out of three or four members of our squad that aren't giving us what we can and, they, and can do. Absolutely, and I think you are, you're teasing some of the viewers or the, or the listeners um, a bit of a, a, a video coming up. Uh, but I think we'll conclude there for our part one of the end of season review. We will do a substitution. Nick is going to tag out for Clive in about a few minutes. But thanks for watching. Let us know your comments in below for the uh, season between July and January. Anything on transfers? results, anything at all, get involved in the conversation below.